I'm John Wu, and, and my Chinese name is Ng Yusam. We used to drink tequila in that way. We put some soda to mix up with the tequila and then cover with a piece of paper and hold it up, slam on a table, and we drink with a bubble. And it will make you feel cool and feel like a man. It was a very popular drink in Hong Kong. I got an image from, you know, a Sam Peckinpah's movie, The Wild Bunch. When I saw William Holden, before the final scene, he drank a bottle of tequila. So I also named my hero Tequila. Before we shot this movie, while I was doing the research, uh, uh, we were interviewed a real hard boy cop. He's young, aggressive, and tough. Uh, a man with real guts, and also pretty handsome. Well, he always gave the the bad guy a hard time. You know, he's very, really tough, and, uh, and uh, he was uh, quite famous in a, a police force. But in the meantime, he's a drummer in a, in a nightclub band. He's a hard boy cop, and also loves music. For myself, I love jazz very, very much. Producer Terence Chang. When we started making Hot Boiled, we had another script. We were shooting another script, um, which I was not crazy about. It's about um, Tony Leung plays a psychopath who put poison in babies' milk in the supermarkets and kill babies. But we have signed the actors or the crew, and also you know the first scene which uh, took place in the tea house. It's gonna be demolished, and we got five days to shoot that scene, the opening scene. But so we went ahead and shoot a scene anyway, and then. After we finished the scene and we, John just sat down and he decided to change the script entirely, but keeping the first opening scene. I also didn't like the idea for the baby killing. It could be give the bad influence for the people. You know, maybe somebody will imitate or learn from, from the movie. So that's why I changed the whole idea to become a uh, undercover story. It was a very difficult location to shoot. Uh, because this tea house was located in a bad area, like, you know, with a bad neighborhood. So we have to shoot at night. The gunfire and the sound effect was so strong and noisy, and it makes the neighbors very angry, you know. They, uh, they always complain and uh, complain to the police uh, department. The police came every night and tried to stop us to shoot, uh, try to throw us, throw us away. But something funny is that when the police force came to our cells, when they saw me, they were very nice to me. Maybe they are my friend, you know. <laughs> and uh, they used to love my movie, and they usually let me to finish the shoot of the day, and they didn't care about the complaining much. Film critic Dave Kerr. Every once in a while, every once in a very great while, a director comes along who's so original and so startlingly new 
that uh, he seems to reinvent a genre. And I think that's what John Woo has done with his films. This is somebody who really understands the medium and was born to make movies. And I think in every shot of this film, you see a cinematic sensibility working in a way that uh, I'd say two or three other directors in the world right now possess. A man who knows exactly where to put the camera, exactly how to move it for the effect he wants to get. Roger Avery. Currently, I'm 28 years old. I just uh, directed a movie called Killing Zoe and uh, co-wrote Pulp Fiction with Quentin Tarantino and am now writing a, uh, a script for John Woo, which I've called Hatchet Man. The first thing that strikes me about this movie right off the bat is the sense of graphics in it. And this movie instantly you know, sets up so much for you with the title sequence, it basically says these guys are they're in a band they're together they're friends then they they basically set up there's a, there's a gun problem in hong kong like before the credits have ever ended then boom you're in the middle of a sting operation there are so many setups going on you know over the course of this so much is happening this sequence must have taken forever to make use of mixed speeds bang the way he just like throws this teapot into the guy's head. Ow! What's striking to me is actually how this really feels about as confusing as it probably would be to be in this, like, gun battle. You're not sure. Who is that guy who just stood up? And it's all been kind of given to you, and on repeated viewings, it's, you know, it's very clear. Oh my god, that, that guy's a bad guy. To me, I watched the opening sequence of Hard Boiled, and I see something that looks like, you know, like, I mean, it had to be planned. But at the same time, it looks like there was a lot of fluidity going on. And I think that's inherent of a lot of Hong Kong films because there's a lot less restriction on, for instance, squibs. The Hong Kong audience is more accustomed to a stylized violence. It's not a violence that is meant to be taken literally. It's a violence that is known to be very choreographed, very colorful, very abstract. It's a tradition that goes back to the Peking opera and was developed through the martial arts films. We had never had a specific idea or a story for the scene, how we're going to make it. Usually I will walk through the whole Seasu, see what I can use, see what I can do with the occasion. When I'm staging a fight scene or trying to create a fight scene, usually I would spend a day on a set or on a location. I usually put myself into the character and I used to imagine if I am the hero, if I am in the same kind of situation, what will I do? So I usually will run through the whole scene by myself. I will imagine that if I put some of the guy on the second floor, uh, how, to, how to start a fight. So, for example, if I'm rowing on the ground, before I get up, I will set some of the people up on the ceiling or beside the uh, corridor. And then when I get up, I can shoot them both uh, very easily. And then I run because I've been attacked by some of the people on my back. So I, I got to run down to the second floor. But at the same time, I was stuck by the 
bunch of people. So what should I do? Oh, and then I will figure out I can slide down uh, by the finisher and slide and shoot at the same time to get those bad guys. It's incredible to me to watch, and it doesn't feel so structured. It feels like a lot of it was made up, you know, while they were there. Inspiration, a stuntman maybe said, look, or even Chow Yun-Fat, and a lot of times the stars in Hong Kong films do their own stunts to a certain extent, unless it's like really dangerous. And as a director, John, especially working with so many stunt people all the time, he's got to be fluid about what he does. Dave Kerr. Well, I think the mistake a lot of people make is in assuming that there's one kind of violence in movies, and that's very far from the truth. There are dozens and dozens of different ways of filming violence and treating violence and thinking about what that can mean in the, in the, in the context of a story. I think in John's films, violence is immediately very, very physical, very, uh, like I say, very rhythmic and tense. It, uh, it has that effect of putting you in another physical place. But at the same time, it's also standing in for the very intense emotional relationships between the characters. Uh, violence becomes a way of these, these men have to, uh, of relating to each other. It's uh, able to express these very intense feelings that they would not be able to express uh, in any other way, certainly not verbally, uh, certainly not physically, but through uh, passionate uh, uh, violence. John's films are not at all about control. John's films are this kind of celebration, a kind of breakthrough, and they use this very stylized violence to, to achieve that. So in fact, he came up with a very good idea. He said, if he got a flower on his face and the blood splat on his face, he will make it feel more tragic, feel more sad. At that moment, and I think everybody will go blind. They don't know exactly what, they, what they're doing. So he killed a guy, it means something. To kill a killed a bad guy, it become a little bit personal. He did it for revenge, but you know, and also uh, I want to tell this character, he's not perfect. He do the thing which some people want to do, but they couldn't do it. You're good. 次次手槍落到你手,你一粒子彈都沒了,一粒中了。Fred was the former inspector, so he got a lot of great experience and he he actually playing himself. He used to be a very tough and honest cop. Somehow he just fell up to being a cop and he find out he he had another talent, so he changed to become a film director and actor. So I'm I'm so glad to can can have him for his role. Uh, he's uh, such a great actor. I think there are two different kinds of pacing in a movie. There's pacing within the scene and pacing within the overall context of the movie. And as we've just seen, John Woo is obviously a master at pacing within the scene, the kind of intense statico rhythms that he's able to produce with his action sequences. But to provide a contrast to those scenes and provide an overall sense of rhythm to his movie, he has to interject a certain number of quiet, reflective moments, and we're about to see one come up now, which is the funeral of the cop who has died. I believe this is the only time in the movie where we see Tequila in his police uniform. He's part of a social context, he's part of a unit, and this is an important notion in Hard Boiled. 
in that it's very much his sense of alienation from that group produced by the accidental death of the, of the other cop that haunts him. Movies are not individual moments. Movies are an entire pattern of moments of action and repose, of noise and quiet, of intense emotions, and of uh, reflective moments. Many of the elements of the modern action film begin with Howard Hawks. Always comes the scene where we uh, examine the worldly remains of a character who has died uh, poking through the, uh, the pocket watch and the wallet and the handful of change on top of the bar, and that is the way characters are mourned. John Wu, I believe, uh, has his own versions of those, of those rituals. In the original script, there was no bartender of this character. The bar scene was the last day of, of shooting. So in fact, uh, he always wanted me uh, to appear in the scene with him. We are very good friends, and he wanted to show our friendship on the screen. So that's why he and me made up this character as a, his mentor. We only used one hour to search for, for my scene. And we made up all the dialogues and all the, uh, the story all on the set. You know, we just uh, speaking out of something and then we, we dub it in afterwards. If the film dub in English, <laughs> well, I would like uh, Robert DeVoe <laughs> to dub my voice. <laughs> He's the actor which I respect a lot. For Tony's character, I want to establish his living in a darker side. But he also is a dreamer. I just want to treat him like a rock star. You know, he's driving a sport car in a, in a city. Seems to be everything under his control. The whole city, his life, the whole business. What he's going to do is unknown. But what he knows is uh, he really knows what he wants. You know, when I'm shooting, I'm crazy. I see no one. I don't care. I don't care about the project. I don't care about is it right or wrong. And I don't care about the logic. The logic is usually very boring. So that's why when I'm shooting, I do what I feel. I'm free and open. I have never cared about the censorship. I have never cared about the length of the scene. I just... When I feel right, when I feel good, and I will go through the whole scene, and I will do the whole scene until it satisfies me. One of the standard narrative practices of films is to present a deceptive surface and reveal the, the truth underneath. It's a very cinematic process because movies are images, movies are surfaces. And to give those things a dramatic charge, we often discover that surfaces are deceptive, that there is obviously more to characters than, than meets the eye, characters and situations. Now here we see one of the great reveals of all time, uh, a guy turning pages in a book, striking up a conversation with a fellow across from him. And now the gun. An incredibly shocking scene, the, uh, the quickness of the edits there, which contradicts those very slow, sinuous camera movements we saw when Tony entered the library. And again, the slowness of his walk away from what he's done, a great example of the way uh, Wu buries rhythm within scenes. 
And that slowness again which is picked up by Tequila here as he enters the scene. So we can already see a certain kinship between them as expressed more in terms of rhythm, of uh, body movement, of a certain casual approach to life, a coolness, if you will. Southern Fat is an unusual cop. So if you want to get the guy, he, he had to think and behave like him. Just like me, when I'm working on every of my movie, and I used to put myself into the character, if I'm shooting a killer and I portray myself as a killer, if I'm shooting a junkie and I uh, live like a junkie, and if I'm shooting a soldier and then I, I would live like a soldier, that's the only way to get the true feeling about the character. And in my mind and in my head, always overlap and dissolving in every different kind of character. So that's why I, I'm using a lot of dissolving uh, freeze frame technique on the montage shot. Well, I must say the, uh, the freeze frame I was learned from Truffaut's film. He was the first one who, who was using the freeze frame to tell the emotion. But for, um, for myself, uh, uh, I usually don't care about the theory. I have never cared about the theory. I have never cared about the right film language. I use what I feel like to use. Roger Avery. This whole idea that you lose yourself as an undercover cop or as a person in the law, you know, it's not necessarily a new one, but for some reason, no matter how many times people do it, it doesn't ever really get tired. It's sort of like there will always be a demand for vampire movies as long as it's a good vampire movie. And there will always be demands for undercover cops getting lost in themselves movies <laughs> as long as it's a good one. You know, losing yourself to your dark side, I think, is a common theme. You know, we as as people, the natural thing that we do is to test our extremes constantly, you know, to see how far we can go into the dark side of our nature and how far we can go into the good side of our nature and how damaging that can be in either direction. And it just applies itself, you know, just by its the very nature of, of what it is, it applies itself to, to this idea of being an undercover cop. Because you're dealing with a criminal element that is far beyond what normal people generally experience in their daily lives. And it's somebody who has to put themselves into an environment and be somebody that they're not and either become seduced by it or just completely lost in it. And that's a common theme, not just for undercover cop movies, but for people in their normal lives. And I think that's probably why it's such a popular subgenre. This is pretty much a boilerplate scene. This is an obligatory narrative moment. We have to show the hero you know, receiving his, his mission, his uh, sense of what he has to accomplish, and we have to show him with his colleagues in a social setting. We can see here by the camera placement and the, the color of the costuming and how Tequila is kept apart from his colleagues. He's a different person, a different attitude toward his work. The dark shirt, the uh, closeness to the foreground. He's the one who gets to move. The others are locked in the group, much more part of the group than he is. The feminine symbol of the flowers of the woman police chief, the uh, communications from the 
double agent. The undercover cop are presented in the terms of love letters. It's interesting that emotion is expressed most directly in Wu films through through ritual, through indirect means, uh, and here we see a direct expression of emotion is, of course, a complete lie. It's about something else. About the statue of uh, General Huan, he's the god who uh, represents honor, loyalty, and chivalry. It's said in uh, every police station in Hong Kong. The Hong Kong police, no matter it's Chinese or British, they all worship him. But the funny thing is that the gangster in Hong Kong, they also worship the same God, General Grant. <laughs> this is Teresa Mo, who's uh, one of the best actress in Hong Kong. And she can be comical, and also she can be very serious. Usually the female in my movie is a little bit weak and or only have a small part sometimes. But for this time, we want to create a female hero with a strong character and also feel like the girl next door. She could have been commander. Even though they can be in a police force, but they are not allowed to carry guns. I think it's according to the British system. The British female cop also have no gun. And it's the big difference with the uh, United States force. For Wu, who's often accused of sentimentality uh, in his relationship between men, to use flowers as a means of communicating between an undercover agent and his police superior, he seems you know, very ironic, very deliberate. It's his way of saying, again, surfaces are deceptive, that perhaps a direct expression of emotion is always a lie, is always something else in what it seems to be. Wu takes his time to set up the characters, set up the situation, set up, you know, the moral basis for the drama. There's always something meaningful at stake. There's always very strong, very emotional ties between the different people involved in one of his films. Ties of friendship, ties of betrayal, ties of hatred and revenge, but always emotions that are incredibly hyper-real, incredibly intense. That's what makes these films so emotionally vivid, so emotionally exhausting to watch. Wu does not put the same value on maverick individualism as his American counterparts do. He's much more concerned for the welfare of the group, for the health of the unit, for um, the sense of belonging to a society. The value is not placed on revolt for its own sake. It's a situation that's familiar from a lot of American movies, I think from the Dirty Harry films as the, the renegade cop versus the, the superior who's trying to keep him in line, keep him under control. Except that here the uh, superior is not caricatured. He's taken seriously. He's a representative of a certain professionalism, of dignity, of uh, restraint. And I think, if anything, the movie is a bit suspicious of tequila in these scenes. Uncle Hui represents the old traditional old-timer. He's the man with honor and loyalty. He loyal to his family. He loyal to himself. Um, even though he's a bad guy, but he he also is a man with principle. Uh, it's very different with nowadays. You know, the game nowadays they uh, they don't care about the honor. They don't care about the moral. 
they don't care about the variety in in their own society. For Hoi said uh, he he doesn't want to leave Hong Kong because he need to taking care of his his own man. Uncle Hoi that he really love uh, he really love his man. He treat everybody like like his children, like his own children. Without being able to control it, Tony has become part of this family. And although his morality is quite a bit different from those who surround him, there are bonds of comradeship, of work, of shared obligations, and particularly a bond with the chief who functions to him as a father figure, giving advice, listening to his troubles. As an undercover policeman, you must ultimately betray. So not only you know, do you have to be likable, you have to be a betrayer. And that's the painful element. That's one of the, the themes, one of those moral themes that I find in his films, constantly running through it, is the sad need to betray. I think it's Joseph Campbell that says that, you know, good and evil, right and wrong, you know, bad and good are only apparitions. The only true thing that there is is the center. And I think that's the strongest, most inherent theme in all of John Woo's films is that it's really uh, the center and the convergence and that we are all capable of good and evil. Anthony Wong is uh, also a good actor. He's, uh, uh, since he has so much admire of Al Pacino, uh, Robert De Niro, and he always liked to imitate him. <laughs> well, but uh, I must say he also had his own style, and um, in in this film, he represents uh, the new kind of force, the new kind of uh, the new generation, which is uh, more ruthless, uh, cool, and he also represents evil. This here is Philip Kwok. Philip Kwok is a good example of a man. He's a hitman. He's an assassin. He kills people. But he has a moral side to him. And what he does, he does because that's what he does. That's the kind of person that he is. But that doesn't necessarily make him a bad man. You know, he doesn't shoot nurses and he doesn't kill babies. And he stands up for things when they feel morally wrong to him. All these people have moral guidelines. Well, most of the people, except for this other guy, <laughs> this other mob guy. Well, I was making a Once a Thief in 1991. At that moment, the crime in Hong Kong seems to be our control. They really go way too far. The gangster, you know, they throw bombs to the police station and they see the police force, nothing. And the gangster in Hong Kong, they hire the gunman from China, from Philippines or, or anywhere to do it the killing job of robbing the bank. They were using the AK-47, the heavy weapon, to robbing the bank and shooting the people crazy on the street. And the police force uh, seems to be hard to do anything with that. You know, I think the Hong Kong police is one of the best police force in the world, but you know, it's just that the robbers, and since they got a China connection, I mean, they became so powerful. I mean, they're so, they're so ruthless. It's really scary, you know, living in a city like that. I disagree with John when he'd say that, you know, the, the police are useless. I mean, that's not true. I think the behavior of those people, 
certainly reflective of what's going to happen in 1997. They just want to make a fast buck, whatever means they can, you know, to get out. Or, you know, they see it as an opportunity for them to think when they hire, you know, those killers from China, you know, they can kill somebody or rob a bank, rob a jewelry store, and they can go back to China. And there's no way that Hong Kong police can go after them. I just want to send a message to, to, the, to the police, to the Hong Kong people, and tell them, even though the world turned upside down, that we still can win. So um, I tried to create a new kind of hero, like the Hong Kong Dirty Harry. He's the man who can stand up and fight for justice, the righteousness. And the man stands for honor and loyalty to the people, loyalty to his country and also fight for their ideal. Sooner. <laughs> Dave Kerr. This is one of the oldest and most distinguished genre in American and now worldwide film. The detective thriller, the police thriller, it goes back to the teens and the rules have remained remarkably constant over the years. Very often that sense of parallelism between the uh, hunter and the hunted, a bond that's created through rivalry, through violence, and always that underlying suggestion that they have more in common than anyone would care to admit. One of the great themes of film noir is that it's ultimately impossible to tell the difference between the, the uh, lawman and the outlaw. And in this sort of neutral territory, uh, Wu introduces the informer, Foxy, who obviously shares a great deal with Tony and Tequila, but yet is portrayed in much more negative terms. He's a betrayer, not a man who acts out of honor, but a man who acts for selfish interests, for profit motives. Wu is not letting either Tony or Tequila off the hook for the kind of betrayals they have to perform in the course of their duties. And this character is here to remind us of the moral cost of that kind of deception. Director John Wu. Well, this is Foxy and, and played by Dong Wei. In his Chinese uh, nickname, we call him Corporal. It means that this kind of character is very untrustworthy as the fox. So when we translate to English, we'll call him Foxy. By setting up this kind of moral conflict that Wu really develops the richness of his vision. This is not a superficial world of shoot-em-ups. These are characters with a rich interior life, with something at stake, with a moral point of view on the world. And this obviously improves the film's effectiveness as entertainment because it draws us in much more tightly with the characters. We're able to identify with their thoughts, their inner conflicts much more vividly than we would otherwise. I don't know if every spectator who, who sees this film is going to come away with a sense that it's a work of moral philosophy. I'm not sure that it is myself. It's part of the meaning, part of the texture of the work. It works as entertainment and it works as art because it is expressing a particular and very distinctive view of the world. Hard Boiled is probably a bit less morally complex than Bullet in the Head, which is Wu's masterpiece to date, I think a very complex film about friendship and betrayal over a period of many years. Hard Boiled gives you a lot of the essential woo in very stripped down, very direct ways. 
just as direct as the parallel between the cop and the infiltrator. It's not an ambiguous portrait the way it can be in other Wu films, but it's very strong and very clear and very moving. Hard Boiled is a very linear film. It all takes place within a few days. The sense of forward movement is very consistent from scene to scene. Hard Boiled is a very clean, very mathematical movie from a director who is also capable of working in a very different register, something more lyrical, something more indirect, as he does in Bullet in the Head. Uh, this is one side of John Woo. He would be a monotonous filmmaker if he weren't capable of working in several different rhythms and several different points of view on his subject. He'll uh, really get into a scene in a way that few filmmakers allow themselves to. You can feel him being very much a part of the action as it unfolds. I think that's one of the meanings of that camera that just keeps pushing in and pushing in and pushing in. He really wants to be in there kind of playing along with the characters. And there are scenes such as this one where it feels, watching it, that he uh, perhaps has lost his sense of control just a little bit. Things are escaping his, uh, his sense of proportion. Things have gotten a little out of hand. And instead of unbalancing the film, I think it, it makes it more personal, it makes it more exciting. It's a, a moment of, of revelation. You can feel his pleasure in, in what he does, which is a very rare thing and, and very, very beautiful when it happens. Terence Chang. He's very good at creating the mood of the tempo, of the, of the pace of the entire film. For instance, he also likes to shoot uh, in sequence. When he did the first scene, that sets up the mood of the entire film. When I'm shooting, I, and I usually do the first scene first, you know, I mean, start from the beginning. After I did the, the first action scene, I always try to make it better than that for the other scenes. The first scene really establishes the mood of the entire film. But for Hot Boil, there are, you know, three major set pieces, action set pieces. So when he's doing the warehouse scene, he's always trying to top the tea house scene. How can he do it? So he got to, you know, force himself to create a lot of spectacular action sequences. And then after he did that, it comes to the hospital scene and he wants to think of a way to top that and top the warehouse scene. So the tension builds up. I usually have the whole scene in my mind before I start shooting. Therefore, I know the exactly function of each of the camera angle. It's a talent he has, you know, for, even from the very first film. While we were shooting the warehouse scenes, the scriptwriter, uh, Barry Wong, he died. And he had not finished the script. One night when we were shooting the, the warehouse scenes, my assistant came to me and said, uh, Barry, Barry's died. In the first beginning, I thought they said his friend and I didn't pay much attention because I was too concentrated on, on the work. But the next day, they told me again it was him. I was shocked and I, and I couldn't speak a word during the whole night. Uh, I was very sad because for Barry, he's the, besides he's a good friend of mine, we have a, over 15 years friendship. And I, even though we haven't been working together for over 15 years, it was a true talent, which I really admired. Roger Avery. John Woo does action sequences unlike anybody I've ever seen you know, do them before because they don't feel to me like they've been storyboarded and planned out and structured so you know long in advance. They are always so much fun for making an action scene. 
have so much joy when I'm making it. Fortunately, I never run out of idea. And with my stuntman, I can do almost anything. We just create as we go. In fact, I've always heard that the stuntmen are treated like kings there. You know, they're they're paid all year long. You know, it's not us on a stunt by stunt basis and it's not on a movie by movie basis. They're like, you know, the stuntmen, you know, these 10 guys are the stuntmen and they do the stunts and they're paid all year long and they're treated like kings. But come that day when John Woo points at you and says, okay, you're up, <laughs> fall off of this building and land on your head right here. You know, they've got to like do it. And, you know, I think, and I think they're just a lot more bold about what they do. We wanted to create certain spectacular stunts for them to showcase the talents, but they're safe, you know, and aided by his camera work, you know, the, the stunts would come out very spectacular. And he feels that the stunt guy should be appreciated for what they can do. Usually I decide all the uh, camera angle by myself. But sometimes uh, I also give a freedom for the cameraman and the stunt coordinator uh, to let them choose their own camera angles. There were two kinds of stunt groups in Hong Kong. One only do for the fight scene. The other one only do the car stunt. Philip Kwok and those people, they, they were trained in Peking Opera, you know. So they're very good in choreographing, fighting and, and so forth. But the other guys, they are really car guys, you know. They, they specialize in, in cars and motorcycles. Philip Kwok, also a stunt coordinator in the film. Uh, he's a, one of the best stunt coordinators in Hong Kong. So um, he had been trained by the Peking Opera. This is a crazy guy, but he's so dedicated and focused. I want to add that, you know, Philip was an uh, action star in the early 70s. He made a lot of uh, martial arts pictures. And he had been in uh, uh, Zhang Jie's uh, several films. He loved acting, and he and he acted very good. My stunt group, they always say one word to me. They said, if you can imagine it, we can do it. I always try to use something which I have never used before or which we haven't seen it before in the Hong Kong film. Usually I will let them know what I need, what I'm going to do with the scene. For the big action stuff, because it needs a lot of preparation and rehearsing. So that's why I will let them know two or three days before shooting. Actually, all the stunt guys, they have never taken any rehearsal. All the incredible action, they just did it for one time. Because uh, they are so much professional and so calculated. In the original script, there were, there were no Mad Doctor's character. So uh, we, while we are shooting, we found we need a very strong image uh, in, in, the, in the game. And I found an actor, Anthony Wong, He's a good actor, but his image is so weak. So we need a much stronger guy to stand by him to gain more pressure feeling. So uh, we add this character, Mad Dog, into the scene. And I wanted to try to make it different with Anthony Wong's character, means try to establish the people like Mad Dog. He still have a code of honor. 
that will make his a different with uh, Anthony Wong. Philip Cork has a powerful presence. That's maybe the add more sin for him. All the time I try to explain to the actors and the crew how I feel about certain setups. If they don't get it, I will try to act out the scene myself or humming a certain kind of music mood to them. But if they still don't get it, I would get very upset and angry. And I would keep the mood and the rhythm to myself and not trying to explain. And only when I put together a rough cut, they would then know what I was trying to achieve in that setup. Sometimes the timing is a little bit off, you know, like, you know, the Uncle Hoy and his people coming up in several cars and Mad Doc, yeah. he shoots at them and it's a car crash and explosion and so forth. The first time we did it, it's, uh, it's NG, but it takes like four hours to set up that shot, you know, so what can we do? So John just saved it by cutting, by editing. We shot three takes, but uh, there were none of the takes that I satisfied. But we didn't have uh, much time to uh, do it again, so I cut with the NG shot, and I, I used them all to combine together. Even though John's movies deals a lot with the triads, uh, the gangsters, but he's not really interested in their lives, the rituals, or their organization. He's only using gangsters because, you know, they are colorful people. He wants to use these characters to expand on his themes, which are friendship, loyalty, and, and so forth. And John got criticized for glamorizing the gangsters, and he didn't like that. He said, I'm not, you know, making films about gangsters, but the audience couldn't understand, you know. So John felt that uh, he should make the characters more positive, you know. He wants to make them cops, you know, they represent justice and, all, and so forth. It's really very difficult when you talk about a, a person, a killer, who kills for money and he's an honest and loyal and, and righteous person. I mean, there's a, a certain ambiguity in there. Uncle Hoy is an honorable figure in underworld. And there is no moral standard in the underworld. He represents some good old traditional code, which doesn't exist nowadays anymore. But in his world, he seems to be, he's the only one left who has a code of honor and loyalty. That makes it different with Anthony Wong's character. In the old traditional morality valley, the people still know how to care about each other, which is hard to find from nowadays. And this kind of spiritual thing always happens in all of my movies. Johnny. I know that's fine, but surely you don't have to kill all my boys. Dave Kerr. Well, here's an example of two male brotherhoods coming into conflict. And for Wu, this is a classic dilemma of, uh, of loyalty, of commitment. Male associations are very, very strong in Chinese society. These are associations based on you know, years of intimacy in, uh, in business relations, in uh, training relationships.
I think Tony Leung's performance was great. He really can capture the character, and and he really put himself into the character. The scenes make him feel like he's killing his own father. When he turned, some people suggest that Tony shouldn't have tears in his eyes. Since he's undercover, he shouldn't show any emotional feeling in front of his enemy. But I insist Tony have tears, because uh, at that moment we shouldn't care about the logic or, or any um, rules, you know. I always like to let the actors or myself to expose whatever we can expose. I mean, when we have that kind of feeling, then just let it go. When a character needs to cry or do any emotional thing, I usually let them go ahead to do it. And I use the uh, slow motion to emphasize that kind of feeling. And it worked very well. We shot two versions, one with no tears, one with tears. But at last, I chose the one Tony got the tears. <laughs> this scene is set up as if it could be the end of the film. It peaks at this moment. You've just been given a huge action sequence, and then you're given this moment, you know, this moment of betrayal. And then he just goes for broke. I mean, he knows he sold himself out, and he knows he has to do it. Tony killed all the boys. Just try to convince Anthony Wong that he really wants to work with Anthony Wong. Since you're the undercover, you have no choice. Well, I think what Wu finds most beautiful in an action sequence is the tension between order and chaos. The beauty of it is in you know, walking that thin line in, uh, in presenting the chaos and the violence in such a way that it has an internal rhythm, that it has a plastic beauty, that it moves you to another place. I think one of the first comparisons you make with Wu is to Jackson Pollock in that tradition of action painting. It's the gesture that's important. It's the movement of the artist as reflected in the end result. It's all moving toward a extreme of, of disorganization, of chaos. And here it is filmed in this great deal of precision, trying to organize experience into something intelligible, trying to make sense out of what is essentially senseless, which is also the quest of the heroes. It's a, an amazing accomplishment. I think what kills a lot of action films is that excessive storyboarding, where every shot, every special effect is planned out, and by the time they're executed, they just have no life left in them. With Wu, you never have that sense of sketches and comic strip-like panels underlying a scene. It, it always feels very vivid, very immediate. I think because he is able to give it that extra push on the set, he is able to project himself into the action so completely and so unselfconsciously. Wu is not letting either Tony or Tequila off the hook for the kind of betrayals they have to perform in the course of their duties. Well, the first John Wu film I remember seeing was at the Toronto Film Festival when uh, A Better Tomorrow was shown as a part of a a sidebar on Asian films, and uh, it was quite a revelation, a movie that it was completely unlike anything else we'd ever seen from that part of the world. 
I think John had really found a very fresh combination of Eastern and Western action archetypes. It was uh, startling, the kind of thing that just keeps you high for days after you've seen it and really couldn't think about anything else, couldn't talk about anything else. Just a, When you're in the presence of something that original, it really shakes you up. And here clearly was a major artist who had just burst, as far as I knew, completely full-blown. Uh, as it turned out, of course, he'd made other films before that. But that was the first one that we, that we knew of. He, of course, began as a director of comedy, and his films retained that vivid sense of, of timing, which is, of course, a key component of, of comedy. One can't say they have all that many comic scenes in them. I, and certainly without his script, I wonder how much storyboarding he's able to do. A scene like this doesn't seem like any storyboarding at all. I just have the sense of somebody out there with a camera and a crew just, just urging this on. Well, you have the huge interior space here that suggests a naked soundstage and all the scaffolding that suggests lighting rigs. It does seem in some ways like a naked expression of Wu on the set, of what it's like to be in a Wu movie with all the, the fictional trappings sort of dropping away. And what you see here is the act of, of filming, which is, in this case, equivalent to the act of massive violence. This is actually two scenes in one. The first scene should be the conflict in between the undercover cop and the gang. The second scene was supposed to, uh, to take place on a cliff outside the warehouse. It was a conflict in between the killer and the undercover cop. But somehow we couldn't find the right location for the uh, cliff. The original idea for the cliff scene was during the fight, somehow the killer was almost far from the cliff and Tony Lang reaching out his hand to grab him with safe stolen fat. But uh, it's hard to find the perfect cliff to do the scene. So I changed my mind and uh, put the scene into the warehouse to keep the conflict element. And also I have uh, plenty of time to shoot the scene. So when they're using the gun, they point to each other. The original design was when the killer, he almost fell off the cliff and he grabbed an edge. Tony Leung, the undercover cop, he used the gun point to his head. It seems like the undercover cop can kill him in any minute. But somehow Tony Leung, he saved the bullet, throw the gun away, and reaching out his hand, grab Tahira's hand to pull him back, save him. Well, from that point, it makes Takila thought he's a really an unusual guy. He must have a story behind him. The images of the paper cranes recall the opening sequence. It's a return to the bird imagery the film began with. We've been through the most intense kind of physical activity imaginable, the physical assault of light and color and sound. And now the world around us seems much more peaceful, much more quiet. We've achieved a new kind of understanding, a new kind of perspective, as have uh, as has Tony, as has to a different degree, Tequila. I think if you get one thing out of this film is that it is not a fantasy of anger, of hostility. It's a search for something small and quiet and peaceful, finally, after experiencing the worst that life has to offer, the most violent emotions we can feel. 
there is this sense at the end that the world is finally a benign, still place. And there's a tremendous beauty in that. Using the bird for Zhou Yunfei in a tea house and people crying for Tony Leung, it was by coincidence. And it didn't plan it that way. We're going back to an office that we've seen before. Now the lighting has changed. It's much darker. There's no more action in the background. It's a more somber, more serious visual. The stakes are getting higher. The action is intensified. The relationships are more serious now. There's more at stake. And again, it shows Wu's inventive as a director that he will never approach the same scene in the same way. Very likely these two scenes were both shot in the same day on the same set within minutes of each other, and yet they both have a completely different uh, look and emotional feel to them. One of the skills of film directing is being able to know how to shift that tone and know exactly where uh, the scenes are going to fit into the overall pattern of the movie, particularly when you're shooting out of sequence, which is a, a constant in this kind of filmmaking. Wu may be the master of a certain degree of ultraviolence, but that does not mean that he endorses uh, widespread, violent, irresponsible behavior in the way a lot of directors who have sort of imitated his work have. He is very much concerned with the traditional role of the hero, the person who maintains the moral values of the community, who preserves ways of life that are worth preserving. Uh, again, always in the context of a group. He's not a mad individualist. One of the ways that hero is defined is by you know, symbolic wounds that he may suffer. Here you see Chow Yun-fat with the band-aid over his, his eye, which is a, a sign of moral combat and, uh, and survival. Wu is not a filmmaker who denies himself much out of the vocabulary that's offered to him. The use of slow motion, the use of these dramatic wipes, the use of this almost constant camera movement. This is not a restrained, ascetic approach to cinema. This is someone who enjoys the process, someone who takes advantage of the many different uh, techniques, different toys that it has to offer. I think it's a mark of Wu's maturity as a filmmaker that he's able to use so many devices that in lesser directors' hands would be self-conscious, would be gimmicky, would be distracting from the story in such a uh, direct and expressive way that you're not all that aware of them. You sense a skill, you sense uh, underlying rhythms, you sense you know, movement being carried forward in, in ways that you're not entirely aware of, but he never intrudes on the action the way many directors do. Characters always come first. Your identification of the characters always comes first, far more than your identification with the director. Roger Avery. To John, you know, it's all it's all about movies. He could care less about Hollywood parties or agents or executives or any of that stuff. He is truly someone who loves film. He just loves just touching the actual film. You know, he edits most of his movies. I called him up you know, the other night, 
and I got his answering machine and it was the music from Lawrence of Arabia playing and like in the background on the machine. And it just struck me that you know, I, I know he loves Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> it's so nice to see somebody who comes from a position of passion and all they care about is just the work and just making movies and making movies for audiences. And that's really what the experience is about. Well, I think Wu, in his technical mastery and his pleasure in the medium, has become probably the most imitated director since Orson Welles, who inspired a similar kind of film buff appreciation. A lot of what's been done in his name is far more self-conscious, far more technically fixated than what Wu does. For Wu, technique is a way of getting to the characters. For a lot of his imitators, technique is an end in itself. Wu is a classical Hollywood filmmaker uh, to the degree that he is self-effacing. It's not an invisible style the way John Ford or Howard Hawks worked, but it is a style that always puts the situation first, always puts the character first. Technique is always in the service of the story, which is the sign of the real master. Producer Terence Chang. I I think I talked about this before, but John is really very good with actors. Some actors who are not usually good actors can be very, very good in his films. Director John Wu. Before we start shooting, and I used to uh, make friends with uh, my actors, and I used to go out with them and talk with them and see how they feel in their actual life uh, and what they're thinking, or even though how they feel about the world, about the uh, people, about the philosophy or, or anything. While we are uh, talking to each other, I usually notice on their eyes, their face, and, and also looking for a good camera angle for my actors. And I watch them very carefully, and I'm also thinking of uh, a lot of technique or camera movement, how to bring out their goodness on the screen. Because the actor to me is very important. They are the soul of the movie. They are not a tool in the movie. You know, John's characters are uh, very colorful, very complicated, and multi-layered. I disagree with a lot of people who regards John just a, as an action director. I mean, his stunts, his action is fantastic, but his characters are a lot more, as you can see in this film. People are usually not what they seemed to be when they first appeared. And you discover slowly, you know, scene by scene, there's something more and more behind them. That's why it's, you know, fascinating to watch. Film critic Dave Kerr. I think I do prefer The Killer to Hard Boiled because the relationship between the two men is much more vivid and pushed much further. And you also have the medium of the woman between them. It's a more satisfying triangle and a more dramatic story. The Killer came out first of the Wu films in America, although it certainly wasn't the first one we saw in festivals. And it was sold as a kind of campy, excessive, fun movie, an impression that was helped by the really amateurish subtitles that the film had in its first issue. I think it looked more like a novelty than it was, something exotic and crazy and goofy and from another world that had nothing to do with us. And I was at the Sundance Film Festival in 92 when this film was shown at a midnight show. Probably the first time that that kind of hip professional audience had been exposed to Wu. And the anticipation was very intense, uh, largely because people like Quentin Tarantino had been talking it up. And 
everyone is expecting uh, something crazy, something wild, you know, to really break up the sort of excessively sober, excessively well-meaning uh, films that tend to make up the Sundance Film Festival. And certainly the audience came to laugh, came to laugh and hoot. And uh, for the first half an hour or so, they were laughing at the mistakes in grammar and the subtitles and laughing at the excessiveness of the sentimentality, laughing at some of the uh, more sentimental moments. But as the film progressed, they became more and more quiet and more and more caught up in what they were seeing. I think that movie probably changed a, a lot of minds there. This was not a, a novelty act. This was someone with something to say, someone with a profound point of view, a director who's going to be around for, for years to come, not just the latest fashion and, and violence. One of the great strengths of the Hong Kong cinema, as we started to see it in the early 90s, was that it was a sincere cinema. It didn't have any second degree. It was not campy. It was not self-conscious. It was still being made very much by people who believed in these patterns, who believed in these archetypes. Very refreshing to see how these old patterns could still work, how they could still be expressive when they weren't treated with contempt, when they weren't treated as, as kitsch. It's easy to make fun of the excessiveness of this stuff. It's not real. It looks campy. It looks extravagant. But it's far more satisfying to feel that personal value, to feel the kind of statements being made, to feel the kind of world that's being portrayed. As easy as they are to enjoy as camp, they are far more satisfying and far more profound films than that. You can see beneath the somewhat uh, exaggerated surfaces, there's a, a great deal that's going on, a great deal of it very, very subtle. Roger Avery. Another interesting thing about to me about a lot of Hong Kong cinema is that it is so derivative of other world cinema. And that means a lot to me because I grew up in what I call the video store generation. Um, a generation of filmmakers who, and this has never been the case before, a generation of filmmakers who have had a database of 10,000 titles on videotape that at any one moment, if you have an argument about a film, you can pop it on and prove or disprove your point. And so the films that are going to be starting coming out now and the films that are coming out in the future, to me, will be films that are amalgamations of many other movies. And I see that a lot in a lot of the Hong Kong films because they're a little shameless about it <laughs> or they're a little less shameful about it. But, you know, obviously you look at a lot of the films that are coming, you know, you look at the work of the Coen brothers or you look at, you know, even my film or Quentin's work or most of the young filmmakers now. And it's just a different kind of filmmaking because we've had a different sort of education. I mean, it used to be that filmmakers would have to go out and wait for a film to come into a revival house. They would talk about sequences from Citizen Kane and the 400 Blows and movies like this, like they were myth. And you'd have to remember all of it or use like stills from it, which often weren't, you know, true to the, you know, they were actually production stills, not really frames from the film. It's a very exciting time for me. Actually, I, I think it's a very exciting time. And it's very interesting to me to think that the next filmmaker is probably some four-year-old who's sitting on a multimedia computer right now. The media literacy that the next generation of filmmakers will have is going to be unbelievable because it's not just going to be cross-references of the many other films, like the many other films in a video store. It's going to be cross-references to video games and informational 
ideas and this information superhighway that everybody's been using, this term that everybody's been using. A problem a lot of younger directors face is, on the one hand, possessing this tremendous technical mastery, being able to study these films on tape over and over again and really know how a sequence is put together. They want to go to these excellent film schools and work with first-class equipment and first-class teachers, and on the other hand, really not having much artistic motivation at all, um, not having much to say, not coming from a, a background where these issues were very present, very real, but existed really only in movies as they were passed along. I think a director like Quentin Tarantino is able to make those issues his own because he believes in them so intensely and he believes in his character so intensely, whereas a lot of other directors just are not and their films will come across as very empty, very cold, and the kind of violence that I find just uh, grinding and, and, and ultimately offensive. Uh, when there's no moral basis, it just turns into sadism. And here's a little sadism here for you. Whoa. An ugly scene, and this is the sort of thing that uh, an American film would probably revel in a lot more. We're pulling back a little bit here, and we're seeing some of Tony's moral dilemma in having to sit around and witness this kind of thing and then participate in it. It's part of his, uh, his job both as a member of the gang and as an undercover cop. The contrast again to the truly psychotic mad dog. And there we have the ultimate act of betrayal, of uh, moral abandonment, and that still frame that Wu uses to register that sense that he's finally crossed uh, a line, a moral line, which there probably is no return. He is a killer now. He has killed uh, a man who's not quite a colleague, but certainly on the same side as the struggle that he is. Terence Chang. Actually, 70% uh, of a film was shot in one set. I mean, it's a abandoned Coca-Cola plant. And we turn it into, you know, this warehouse and the hospital and whatever, the morgue. The, the sets turned out to be very, very um, helpful because, um, you know, after the writer died and the final hospital, uh, the whole final hospital scene, uh, John has to make them up day by day, you know, there's no script. And we didn't know what he was going to do the next day. Different parts of a building turning into different sets, you know. John likes to improvise for his other films, even though there's a completed script, but John would still like to uh, change things because he got inspirations uh, on, on location. He might want to make things better. I mean, I mean, he has every right to do so. So that's why I always over budget in every of my Hong Kong film. <laughs> He likes to brag about it, but I think he stays pretty much within budget on this one. I used to like the wide-angle master shots to introduce the whole set. I achieved that by having the camera follow the killer go into the hospital. When the action starts, the viewers are not distracted. They can relax and go with the actions because the setting is already familiar. 
Actually, for the, uh, for the hospital set, it's a very simple set. We only get uh, the corridor, three rooms, and uh, two separate sections. There's very little doubt that John Wu is someone we would call an auteur. He's a director who expresses himself very immediately, very directly through his films. It's ironic that at a time when directors have more power than they've ever had in Hollywood, films are less personal, less interesting, less complex than they've ever been before, probably because directors don't have that productive tension, don't have that relationship with the studio, with the genres they're working in. There's no more creative excitement. Wu, I think, is able to find some of that. He follows genres to, uh, to see what they give him. He fights them sometimes, he goes along with them at other times. But he's always engaged you know, very much in this dialogue with, with the past, with tradition, as they're represented in, in the genre pattern, genre framework. Someone like James Cameron having far more power than uh, Don Siegel could ever dream of having. And yet I feel he is less free in a way. His films aren't quite as rich because he isn't operating in as rich a context as Siegel did. It's a context of a genre, it's a context of a studio culture, it's a context of uh, an interchange between an audience and a genre that happens over and over again, many times a year. In the 40s or 50s, you would have seen 15, 20 detective thrillers in one year. And those films are responding to what you want to see. Films that are successful are imitated. The meetings late in those films are developed into, into different films. It's a very dynamic process. And a director was making four or five films a year in many cases. Now a director makes one film every two or three years. Um, that rhythm is broken. The relationship with the audience is broken. It's a lonely position. Perfect freedom is perfect isolation in many cases. I mean, he's done an, um, an enormous amount of movies. I think John has done about 25 movies, and you know, many of them are unavailable. I mean, a lot of the movies, I mean, not just in Hong Kong or China, but a lot of movies around the world are just made just for that first weekend or those couple of weeks. And it's important to realize that, that making movies is only partially commerce. It's also art. It's frightening to me, this idea that we just make movies just for an initial release. And it's probably because of video stores take things for such granted now. You know, they see this mass of work and it just, just seems like there's so much, but the truth is there's so little and it all should be protected. If you have more time, and I think I can make Hard Boys much more better. I mean, uh, if I have a, a little more time to edit the film, and it could work much better. Like the hospital scene, and I think it is a little bit too long, and uh, I just wanted to shorten it a little bit. In the tunnel scene, the two heroes, they, they have been captured in the tunnel. The scene is very important because uh, this is all, all about their relationship. They are from misunderstood to getting more understanding each other. It's a, it's a very 
important and it's a very emotional conflict scene. And I wish that scene can stay a little longer. I mean, and uh, to let the, the both actors to show more about their relationship. Because usually I'm never thinking of uh, this kind of movie, the pacing should be go faster or get more action or something like that. I just wanted the film to keep the tempo even. You know, John is a perfectionist. You know, he's always very, very critical of his own work. There are certain things that he sees in his film, for instance, in Hard Boiled, as uh, not 100% perfect. But for other people, you know, um, watching his film, maybe for the first time, you know, there are certain things they, they like, there are certain things they don't like. And, uh, you know, for him, it's a, it, he would take them as an encouragement. I mean, it doesn't make any difference to him. I have never got the feeling of successful because I have never satisfied with all my film. After I made a movie, I watch it, I always find something wrong in the film. So that's why I keep working very hard for every of my movie, just try to make it more perfect. It encouraged me to more focus on making a good film. So I have um, never satisfied my work. See, the beauty of the hospital setting here is its pristine, clean, white, angular quality, which will very quickly be smeared up with a lot of red blood and bullet holes. It's the blank canvas that he is going to paint on. The old analogy in John Woo between uh, the splattering of the blood and, and action painting, it has some uh, validity, you know, again, as in Jackson Pollock. The beauty was in the gesture, and uh, the gesture here is one of extreme emotion, of uh, agitation, of trying to, to uh, break through to something else, to achieve a, a moral and, and spiritual goal. The kind of strong angularity of these scenes is, again, a constant of film noir, probably most uh, famously in the films of Fritz Lang. It's a world that suggests order and restraint, but again, it's one of those deceptive surfaces. The idea of the hospital is conceived by myself and the writer Barry Wong. I use the hospital as a microcosm for our society, especially the Hong Kong societies. The patients are like innocent and helpless citizens. They are locked up, full of fear and worry, seem like have no future. Certainly the shadow of 1997 is looming. It's a theme that I, I often think about. I often do think about it, what it must be like to be trapped in Hong Kong, knowing that your time could be coming up at any moment. I mean, there, all of these like themes, all these images have found their way into the work of John Woo. And this whole notion of ultimately being betrayed and that you know that you're being given up at a later date that you're living really an illusion. I mean, the Chow Yun-Fat character in the beginning, when he has the powder thrown on him and he looks like a ghost, he's living an illusion. All of these characters are living illusions. Well, this is a film that takes place in a pretty distinct historical context, which is the end of Hong Kong as a British crown colony and its beginnings as part of mainland China. I think any film made during a period like this is going to reflect a lot of the concerns in the culture. 
You could say that the, uh, the hospital here is a little microcosm. It's a little world unto itself, as Hong Kong is, surrounded by darkness and chaos, and now that chaos has come inside. I don't sense that much political force in John Woo's films. Something where these movies all take place in John Woo land and not in a literal place. It has politics and populations and people to be governed and worried about. You know, John's nickname in Hong Kong was Headmaster. You know, he's named by the crew when he was shooting bull in the head because he's always very stern. You know, he's always very serious. <laughs> yeah, because I used to like to teach them everything. While we were shooting hard boy, they call me old headmaster. He never smiled when he was making the film. Once in a while, they, they call me the black-faced god, you know, because I, I've, maybe I'm too serious in some way. People were afraid of him. You know, sometimes I asked the AD, you know, what's John doing now? Which shot is he doing now? He said, I don't know. I said, why don't you go and ask him? He said, no, 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 I don't want to disturb him. <laughs> Um, you know, the crew in Hong Kong are, some of them are really inexperienced, especially, you know, doing, working on a film of this scale, and John got to teach them a lot during production. So the whole group seems to be like the student, you know. <laughs> it's also a learning process to me, too. Uh, so I usually took a lot of the good reference from the American film, I mean, uh, to ask the whole crew to watch it and learn from it. And I try to do it that way in every of my movie. And we also learn from that experience. We just keep learning and influence to each other. So that's why they call me headmasters. He was just telling me that in cartoons, you know, the, the cartoon characters can do anything that defies logic. A motorbike can run into a wall and becomes flat and something like that. He thought if it's a real-life action, that would be fantastic, you know, to translate that that kind of action onto onto film. Yeah, Bugs Bunny, Take Avery, and the and the uh, Road Runner. I appreciate every filmmaker, and I understand the whole process, and I understand what the talent is. So when I'm watching a movie, I sometimes try to feel or try to get something from that movie. Usually I'm not using the critic's point of view to watch a movie. When I'm looking at Van Gogh's uh, painting, or when I'm looking at uh, Bugs Bunny, I also can get a certain kind of feeling from, from them. So when I'm watching it, I have never Saying, oh, it's, this Bugs Bunny is a shit, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, it doesn't work, worth to watch it. I just try to get something from everything. All action films are a moral journey to one degree or another. Um, sometimes the heroes discover resources within themselves that allow them to transcend their limitations, allow them to see a new responsibility in regard to other people. Sometimes in the more pessimistic films, the film noir, they discover that these links aren't there, that they are alone, they're isolated, they're helpless in the world. Wu, I think, combines those two themes. He is interested in the individual spiritual state of the heroes, as we see in the beginning of Hard Boiled. It's a story of, of two men who have uh, both failed in different ways. They're out of step with the groups they belong to. 
They're looking to rejoin those groups. They're looking to reestablish emotional connections that have been lost to them. And they do this by remarkable individual heroic acts that allow them to transcend their own limitations that allow them to become agents of positive change who uh, are able to reintegrate fragmented societies, uh, step back into a world that has been shattered and uh, find their own place in it again. I think in the case of hard-boiled, it's more of one man against the world than it is one man relating to another. Uh, this is a character who's let himself down, let his friend down, has, you know, suffered some, uh, an incredible wound that he has to spend the rest of the film trying to repair. And it's his rage being expressed, I think, at, at himself, primarily. Through that kind of intense interaction, he is able to restore his position in the police department in relation to the other officers. Uh, he becomes more a member of the team again at the end when he walks out of the building with the baby. He has uh, earned his honor back that he lost in the opening sequence. In the opening sequence, he kills another policeman by accident. And in this case, he loses his honor, his sense of his professional pride, and I think it's a betrayal of a friendship, of a male bond between the members of the police department. He's then out of phase with his friends, with his colleagues for the rest of the film, and has to find a way of reintegrating himself. And he does this by passing through the most terrible kind of proof of individualism. He basically takes on an army of 200 people and destroys them, proving his own heroism, proving his own integrity by being this one-man army. I think Chow Yun-Fat has some of that openness and naturalness in front of the camera that Harrison Ford has. But he is a more romantic figure. He has more of a darker undertone. There's something always gnawing at Chow in ways that uh, Harrison Ford doesn't seem to have. Chow Yun-Fat is like a Chinese version of Alain Delon. If you watch... Uh... John's films, they feel like Jean-Pierre Melville films. The way men hold guns, the way they hold themselves. And he is Alain Delon. And he's like almost extracted out of all those Melville films. Well, I think what Wu has in common with a lot of the new wave directors is the sense of the director as star, as a personality. And while his technique never interferes with his storytelling, we always sense a strong personality behind the film. He inspires viewers in a way that few directors have since Orson Welles, since Jean-Luc Godard, since Francois Truffaut. He's a model to film students in this way that uh, we haven't had in a long time. I think Quentin Tarantino walks straight into that same, same tradition, same sense. It's exciting to feel a personality behind a film for a change. And it's exciting to know that uh, there are still things to be done and still new things to be discovered, new meanings to be found in this very traditional historic material. In that sense, the director becomes a hero, if not the hero of the film. I created this tunnel sequence because I wanted to put the two main characters in enclosed surroundings. That would allow them time to get to know each other better and to build up their relationship and friendship. In the first half of the movie, 
they only met two or three times, and there wasn't enough room for me to talk about the friendship or relationship. And I also wanted to design the, the Bull's Eyes gag for Tequila. This gag was inspired by a similar setup in Melville's uh, The Red Circle. And I tried to steal in Jews. And it needs Eve Montanda to using a long rifle to shoot at a uh, keyhole in quite a long distance. So he set the rifle on a tripod very steadily and also using the telescope. Then after he set the gun, he can shoot the keyhole without looking at it. But he suddenly take the gun off the tripod and just fire it without looking at it. So it was so amazing. I wanted to in fact to shake his hands before firing because I wanted to create more suspense. I also wanted his character to be more interesting. Here I have established him to be a sharp shooter. So in the final scene when he's shot, Anthony Wong's in the eye is credible. A lot of what draws me in to this film is how John Woo thinks cinematically. You know, the idea of after he's killed the boss, that he knows he has to kill all the other men. I mean, essentially, you know, he's got to get to the bottom of the well before he can climb out. He has to like reach the zenith of the mountain before he can cross over to the other side. You know, this this whole idea that policemen, undercover policemen, are constantly having to to gain people's trust by doing you know, negative acts or things that are like morally horrible to them. And then only to later betray the people that they've gained trust from and that they constantly have to be undergoing this, that this pattern constantly repeats itself. And definitely we as people are constantly repeating certain patterns. Film critic Dave Kerr. Well, the good ones always know how to set up the rules. There's almost always an action scene right at the beginning where we find out just, you know, how sacred is human life going to be held in this movie? Um, what uh, degree of heroics are we going to find permissible? What, you know, incredible acrobatic skills or skills of marksmanship are going to be defined as, as real? And those are the, the benchmarks that are set for the, for the rest of the film. We always feel betrayed if, if those standards change at some later point in the movie. And obviously those marks are set pretty high. Roger Avery. Man, I tell you, I will never do another movie with guns because whenever you fire a gun on a movie set, boom, three hours go out of your day. And that's three hours that you could have spent working with an actor. And that's the fun part of directing a movie is working with the actors. You forget this king of action shit. Who wants to, like, direct cars crashing into each other or somebody firing a gun? That's not fun. You know, it's actually really miserable. I think it may be a little bit more fun. <laughs> Put quotes you know, around that fun in Hong Kong, because there's a lot less concern for safety. Terence Chang. All the guns come from London. There's, um, we rented from a company who got a special license from the police department, and they just ship all the guns from London. Uh, most, most of them are real. John Wu. And it had been examined by the Hong Kong police department. And also, for every day's shooting, we had to report to them how much gun we need what they, what kind of gun, they need to fill in a report. Dave Kerr. John Wu began as a director of traditional martial arts films, costume films, swordplay films. 
in which this uh, sort of material was, was still costumed and presented much as it would be in the Peking opera. The same sort of subjects and the same kind of approach through rhythm, sound, movement. You know, the clanging of the Chinese instruments during the, uh, the Peking opera becomes the firing of the guns in a John Woo film. It's very percussive, very rhythmic. It's the kind of pounding intensity that quickens the blood, that changes perceptions, that makes the world seem to move more quickly and more intensely. And this is all created through the rhythm of the, the soundtrack, the gunshots in the soundtrack, the editing within the scene, the movements of the actors in relation to one another, the way he emphasizes those movements with camera movements that follow the actors along. It all becomes a very intense, very rhythmic, very, I think, immediately physical and at the same time very abstract experience. These are movies that exist for the Chinese audience within a very strict system of codes and expectations, a system that's in many ways parallel to our understanding of the action film, except that we do tend to take things a little more naturalistically. We'll recognize these characters, we'll recognize many of the situations that they find themselves in. But what we won't recognize is the extremity with which Wu handles those feelings, the uh, physical intensity with which he films the violence, which is the extension of those feelings into a you know, physical, visual arena. We will not recognize the depth of passion that he's able to put into these people. One has a feeling with Wu of a, of a life and death cinema. This is the most important thing that he can think of. This is uh, cutting to the quick of life as he knows it. And yet, you know, obviously, this is not a, an image of daily life that any one of us would recognize, and certainly no policeman would recognize as anything like his daily routine. But it's an expression of something inside, a romantic yearning, a, a moral imperative, a need to release these kind of intense, passionate feelings. And they erupt into the world in this form of stylized violence. For the original idea, it was poison gas. We were trying to think they'd get out of the tunnel as soon as possible. Why we shoot the whole final scene without any script? So when I got to intercut uh, what was happening in, in the hospital, we find they have been staying there for quite a long time. If it's the poison gas, they are dying already. So I changed the idea, he just put the uh, fire extinguishers. When a hospital is under siege, it's like people are oppressed by totalitarian government. People lose their freedom as well as their own nature. When a patient are killed, it's like innocent people are getting killed in a war. I hate totalitarianism and ugly politics in general. I have no intention to talk about politics in my films. I'm not interested in politics. And there's no political system is perfect. People are always trying to use politics to obtain certain power for, the, for themselves. But Subconsciously, I can't help putting my own personal feelings towards some politics into, my, into the film. 
For instance, I don't have very strong feelings toward 1997. The babies signified purity and hope. Even though the world is filled with ugliness, hatreds, and crises, I still think there's a hope for the future. We should cherish and protect these new lives. The temptation with this kind of scene is just to become so caught up in it, to lose any sense of perspective, just to keep giving more and more and more and losing that formal control and formal distance. And you certainly see that in a lot of movies um, that are made in John Woo's shadow. When a movie just runs off the rails, it's just not fun anymore. And there's no rhythm, there's no shape to it. It's just bang, 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 bang. It's, you know, like pounding your head against the wall. No pleasure at all. It's much more difficult to make a film with this kind of exhilaration and release than it is just to, just to fire a bunch of guns in front of a camera. That's, that's the least of it. Create those rhythms, have to create those characters, have to create that sense of inner dynamics of attention and release. All release is dull. Terence Chang. Gangsters everywhere. I mean, even in communist country, they're gangsters. But in Hong Kong, because we're in the film industry, so we are very much aware of the gangsters' presence in the film industry. Yeah, for some reasons, the gangsters always thought, you know, movies is very glamorous and they like to be involved in it, you know. It's also very profiting for them. I personally have very, very little dealings with gangsters uh, myself, but except you know of course uh, when you're in production uh, there are always gangsters you know hoodlums coming to you and ask for protection money and and i remember you know many years ago when you're shooting in the streets you pay off one gang and they would keep the other gangsters away from you but now when you're even shooting in a private property they come to you for instance when we were shooting in, in that tea house or uh, in hospital set different gangs would come to you and ask for money and you just gotta pay them off all of them. I guess, you know, it's the popular actors who are most afraid of gangsters. I mean, the gangsters would go to them and ask them to, you know, sign movie deals with them. If they say no, then something might happen, not necessarily to them, but maybe to the people who work for them, you know, to the family or whatever. Generally, I have never used uh, any second units in my film. I always like to do everything by my own hand, even though a, a, a tiny little uh, close-up for the cigarette or for the, for the gun or some of the action did by the stuntman. You know, I, I like to watch, like, just like watching my baby. I would like to see them cry, they laugh and uh, what they feel. So that's why I have never used the second unit uh, for all my film. But for Hard Boy, it's uh, exceptional, you know, because uh, since we are way over budget and over time. And uh, I only use the second unit in uh, some of the action sequence in, in the hospital scene. Every night, we have a very long hour for the shooting. We usually shoot uh, over 18 or 24 hours a day, or um, non-stop shooting within four or five days. Now, since the hospital set is a, a very big setup, we need to do a lot of things at the same time. Like uh, while I'm shooting the interior scene inside the hospital, then we use the second unit to shooting another stuff outside of the hospital. Most of the time we will have uh, three units uh, shooting at the same time. 
while I'm shooting Takeda and Tony Leung, they are fighting with the gang in inside in a room. And my assistant director, uh, Patrick Leung, sitting in the car park scene, the, uh, the policeman having hit by the, by the gunman. And my brother shot the patient escape scene. All of the scene, I, I went to watch the rehearsal and I, uh, and I set up everything and uh, let them do it. Um, but sometimes they did more than I expect. So the, the interesting thing is that it's, it's interesting the whole building is that there's a real war going on because no matter inside or, or outside, there are always a bang, 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 as a, a firearms. <laughs> and uh, the both crew, they are shooting each other. I'm firing at a second unit crew and the second unit crew, they're firing at us. So we always got to complain from the neighbors and, and the police force. Well, just the entire concept of having this huge action sequence with explosions and bombs and just complete chaos, just oceans of bullets flying through the air in a hospital and especially in the, the baby ward. I mean, that's a pretty daring thing to do right away. And I think that you wouldn't really see that often in an American film. But at the same time, it's such, it's just how I feel. A man from Hong Kong would view doing a big, kind of American action ending, but keeping it distinctly Asian. But it's such a strange cultural amalgamation that it becomes pleasurable to me to watch. I think when John made Hard Boiled, he was ready to come to the United States. And I think actually he probably imagined Hard Boiled as an American film. I, I mean, I'm, spe I'm speaking for John and I don't know if I should do this, but it's just how I feel watching the movie. It feels more so to me than his other films. It feels like like an American movie, like it could have been transplanted and completely done from scratch in America and that it feels like other American action films. Well, actually, John started getting offers from Hollywood when we were making Once a Thief in 1990. Fox was the first studio to contact John. We were shooting in Paris and we got a call from them and saying, you know, we want you guys to come over here and I want John to do this film. But somehow, you know, things didn't work out because we got to finish the film and we got to do Hard Boiled. And so um, we didn't come over here until we finished Hard Boiled. It was really the killer that opened the doors for John because it's uh, very unusual for an action film that you have, you, you sort of romanticize the gangs with the bad guys. And also it's shot with such a style, you know, which is very unusual in action for an action film. But then I'm glad that we made Hard Boiled afterwards because, you know, it confirmed that, you know, John can make a conventional kind of action films and can he can do it well. I think Hard Boiled is um, much closer in production to a, to a typical action film. Somebody called Die Hard in Hospital. When I'm choreography and action scenes, I'm very sensitive to all the movements around me, from the actors, from the set, from, from the crew, from anything. A bird or a fly flying by or, or a guy moving his arms, they immediately stimulate me to create some action movement by combining the movements of the actors and the cameras. The trick with movies is that you can actually cut in all those spontaneous moments and shape them and create that spontaneous feeling. 
When you're making a really big movie, you become insulated from a lot of the problems that you normally have to deal with. There's nothing more scary to a, to the money people than when all of a sudden you throw out a plan and say, I'm going to work off of the inspiration of the moment. That is like terrifying for a producer to hear. In these scenes, when the two cops entered this area, I wanted to create surprises for the gangsters and the cops, as well as for the audience. Now, this is a scene that's going to strike a lot of people as just insanely excessive, but at the same time, it is following out and completing all of the moral contrasts, all of the moral movement of the film. And it's doing so in this kinetic, sonic light show of something so completely abstract and intense that it almost becomes something other than action. Wu's films are ultimately about transcendence, about a search for wholeness, a search for peace. And it's a search that's obviously conducted through its exact opposite, through extreme stimulation, through extreme action, through the physical intensity that finally, when it subsides, gives way to a sense of being on a new plane, something spiritual, something beautiful. never wonder if they're going around out of bullets because Wu has established that this is not a world where that is even a possibility. This is another place. This is a far more abstract, more metaphorical, more imaginary environment. There are as many bullets in this world as there are impulses and desires and wants. Limitless. But probably the most important director of this kind of film before Wu would have been uh, Don Siegel in his cop movies in the 50s and the 60s, and then in Dirty Harry, which really invented the modern cop film. And again, a film that's much more ambiguous than uh, many people give it credit for being, a parallel between Harry, who's a pretty sleazy guy who peeks through windows, uses excessive force, who is not a hero, not a tidy good man, but a, a renegade Every bit as violent, every bit as capable of, of cold-blooded murder as is his opposite number, this uh, psycho killer who's stalking San Francisco. An idea that Siegel had developed in a lot of films before that, but which really came to the fore in, uh, in Dirty Harry. Boo, I don't know if he's been directly influenced by Siegel. He certainly has been influenced by Clint Eastwood, by the whole urban cop thriller genre that came out of Dirty Harry. Cinema is achieving an international language, and unfortunately that is the language of Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who appear to play in every country in the world. 
And it is not a two-way street. Chow Yun-Fat does not play in every country in the world. You know, chalk that up to the triumph of American imperialism or what you will, but that is the reality. And not a very encouraging one. The hospital scene, too, has its precedent in a, a little-known film by Sam Fuller called Dead Pigeon on Beethoven Street, where there's a shootout in a maternity ward. After we had shot more than 35 days non-stop in the hospital set, everybody was extremely tired and exhausted. We didn't get much sleep, and the environment was very unhealthy. We were like shooting in hell, like we were fighting in a war that never ends. And my producers were nagging me about going over budget. Creatively, I was also getting very tired of shots of my heroes firing and kind of reactions of gangsters getting shot. So I decided to do something crazy, something totally new and exciting. Near the end of shooting of my every movie, I usually went crazy and, and lost my senses. So I told my crew, I wanted to create a shot lasting three or four minutes long and with a lot of action going on. I discovered this with my actors and my crew and they were all excited about this. They looked upon this as a challenge to them and the morale was suddenly very high. Aside from aesthetic reasons, I also wanted to create room for my crew to stretch their creative limits. We were rehearsing for one day and using one and a half day to set up all the script, special effects and explosive stuff. And we were using nine to 11 monitor to set up in every corner to see the whole thing see the actors and the stunt guy, you know, so we we all hiding in a small room with a special effect guy with a stunt coordinator. So when, you know, our hero firing and we, the special effect guy in the room, you know, so they press a button to blow up the effect. It, it got to match perfectly. So we have 11 monitor in every corner. While we are rehearsal, we are using the static cam but there were not enough room to use the, that equipment, you know, so it's so heavy and, and, and big, you know, it's hard to turn smoothly. It's hard to get a good distance with the actors. They always cross together. So uh, we give up that. At the end, we use the handheld camera, much more simple. So the whole shot, we took three times. And the cameraman just holding the camera, just following the whole scene. It was empty for two times. And we were way out of budget. Because it need about $800,000 for one day. But on the fourth day, I tried to do it in separate shots. Because we don't have money. I did. Because it's a difficult shot. Sometimes, uh, you know, the, the elevator door wasn't that good. Sometimes it couldn't open. Sometimes it's stuck. So, and, and then we did the whole thing again. 
I was so frustrated. But the whole crew, the actors, the stuntmen, the special effect crew, they, they asked me to do it again. They'd rather like do it with no pay because they thought this is a very great idea to do it well. They just want to finish it. I couldn't nearly afford to reshoot the entire shot. So I just reshot the second half. And the two halves were joined together by dissolve. Guess where it is. In the meantime, the, the other reason was uh, Tony Leung uh, get hurt on the first take. His eyes were hurt by the broken grass. And the grass uh, come to his eyes. He almost got blind. And he need to take uh, rest for few days. So when we do it again, and I was so much aware of the people get hurt. So I, I was trying to give up. But Zhao Yanfei, Tony Leung, they asked to do it. They don't care. <laughs> well, like um, a lot of the classical Hollywood filmmakers, Wu has been able to develop a very personal set of themes across a very commercial set of plots of stories. He uh, has the ideas that he wants to treat and the relationship of men to each other, of men to their past, of men to what uh, their moral responsibilities may be. Uh, he is able to deal with these themes through the codes provided to him by the action film. It's become very rare, I think, for a director to be able to be this personal in a context of a cinema that is marketed ruthlessly for uh, audience appeal. He is a wholly committed personal filmmaker in, in a degree that uh, is extremely, extremely rare in today's cinema. This is a movie that's kind of intimidating. It's too big for, for people. It's out of scale. Wu doesn't back off from his implications the way a lot of American directors are really smart enough to do. He doesn't play the audience's, uh, doesn't sense the audience's embarrassment. He doesn't back down and give you a reason to laugh. There's very little irony, very little distance from the characters here. He is, he is right in there with them. There's no distancing, self-deprecating jokes the way Arnold Schwarzenegger will offer a wisecrack after he's just murdered somebody, which is a way of you know, diminishing the horror of a killing in a way of uh, reassuring the audience that it's uh, it's okay, it's not serious, it's all just a joke. Uh, Wu does never, Wu never gives you that relief. It's not a joke, it means something. You know, I'm going to woman, um, the woman policeman have no gun. And the Hong Kong policemen, they cannot carry a gun. So, um, for this scene, I wanted to design something for Teresa Mo to show her hatred. And, um, to try to make her as a uh, heroine. So she grabbed the guns to the guy for the purpose of protecting the baby. 
By coming to Hollywood, John Woo is fulfilling a very old tradition, which is that Hollywood absorbs the great talents of the world cinema. Some people learn to function there very well. Fritz Lang probably made his best films in Hollywood, and some are just rejected right away. Uh, Sergei Eisenstein had his unfortunate experiences, and any number of others. And Louis Bunuel, Paul Fejos, uh, the list is really probably equally balanced between those who made it and those who, who did not. And a bit mysterious to know just, just why some people succeeded and some people did not. We're coming to a point where Hollywood is going to be the only cinema left in the world. So thank God someone like John Woo can, can work his way in there. All these local traditions are going to be eliminated. Wu is lucky because he is able to talk this language, this Hollywood language, too. Whereas a lot of those regional filmmakers are not going to be able to. And a great challenge for Wu, will he be able to preserve his identity, his cultural background, his specific point of view and life experience when he begins uh, working in earnest in Hollywood. And my hopes are with him because he's a strong and smart man. There are three rating categories in Hong Kong. Um, it's equivalent to our NC-17 and R and PG. We call it grade one, grade two, and grade three. And grade three being equivalent to NC-17 or X. Hardboiled, despite its violence, it did not get a, a category three rating. They only suggested uh, if John makes some minor cuts, you know, like four or five minor cuts, then the film would get an R or category two rating, and which John, you know, did. The cuts are mostly bullets going to the body and, you know, stuff like that. What the censors object most is when a person gets shot or, or knifed, you know, that you have this, all these streams of blood spilling out from the body, that, that's what they don't like. No, everybody knows that John Woo's films are violent, and it's not a big deal, but, you know, we, we like to joke about it, you know, on a set. In, in fact, in the earlier, longer version, there's a line which was cut, it was in a library when Tony Leung uh, killed that guy, and uh, somebody, somebody said, oh, there's so much blood, this must be a John Woo movie, you know, but that was cut from... <laughs> Dave Kerr. Well, I think John clearly has seen a lot of Western films. I would assume he's seen a lot of Sam Peckinpah movies. I would assume he's more or less familiar with the uh, film noir tradition. And yet these movies feel completely Asian to me. A different culture is seeing this material, and it comes out a completely different way. What is kind of sadistic and cruel and excessive when this is done by a lot of American directors becomes, in John Woo's film, something really spiritual and transcendent, very intense. John Woo. But Mad Dog is a different, you know. He's a man with a principle, you know, even though he's a bad guy. But he had the coke of honor for himself and for his own world. It's a matter of loyalty. 
Well, a lot of American films, you see that sadistic villain elevated really to star status. Like Dennis Hopper in Speed or Tommy Lee Jones in Blown Away. Somehow the audience is, uh, is cheering for that character. The uh, heroes tend to be so pale and uninvolving that the, uh, the villain walks away with the movie. Natural endpoint of that being something like Natural Born Killers, which tries to be ironic but really ends up doing little more than uh, fetishizing the killers, the uh, psychotic couple on the run. Not much perspective there at all. Here's a case where the villain represents just the furthest extremes of amorality, of chaos, of darkness. He doesn't have much personality apart from that. He's such the radical opposite of the values of the film that there's really no need to characterize him anymore. He is, he's death, he's black, he's the whole. And it's a tribute to Wu that he's really not interested in that kind of thing. It's, uh, he's not fixated on the villain's sadism. He, characterizes the villain with it. He certainly doesn't shrink from it, but he's not uh, not fetishizing it, not obsessed with it. It's nowhere near the center of his movie. It's a necessary element, it's the background, it's the thing that all the characters are reacting against, but it's not what the film is about. In a film like Blown Away, um, where the violence is used in a sadistic way, I think, to create the expectation that in this case um, a little girl and her mother are going to be blown up by something in their house. Um, as it turns out in the scene, nothing very serious happens, but you see them walking through the house, turning on various appliances, these gigantic close-ups of things like the gas range lighting and the, uh, the sparks flying between the, the contact points on the uh, electrical switches. It's uh, an aggression on the audience. It's, it's really, it's hammering you in the head saying, we're going to kill a little girl, you know, so watch this and be excited by it. And it's, you know, that, that I find really sickening, awful. Uh, nothing to do with what John Woo does with the baby and hard-boiled, let's say. Um, it becomes an expression of the character's gallantry, you know, his amazing grace under fire, his special status uh, that he is able to protect this child. And the child, you know, returns the compliment by protecting him, by putting out the fire in his pants. Uh, it's a loving, it's a tender relationship, and it's very beautiful. Nothing to do with uh, the kind of sadism you see in a movie like uh, Blown Away. You know, dangerous stunts like this really take a lot of time to set up and a lot of time to prepare. And in Hard Boiled, since John can literally, he, he could literally have as much time as he wanted, so, uh, you know, a lot of those amazing stunts are created. But in Hard Target, we got to keep looking at our watches all the time, you know, it's just impossible. I guess John is kind of lucky, you know, because um, uh, I remember the scene, the, the shot where Chow Yun-Fat was holding the baby and he was running away from the explosion. The first take, you know, John didn't like them because, you know, the explosion is too far behind. And um, so the, the next, the, for the next take, he said, let me push the button. And before, before Chow Yun-Fat was ready, you know, he pushed the button and Chow was really scared and he was actually running for his life in that shot. But, you know, uh, even though, you know, after the shot, he, he went up to, to, to the DP and to John and said, you know, how, how does it look? Um, does it look real? And so forth. And, you know, he's really professional. But then he turns around and said, that motherfucker. <laughs> John Wu. Uh, never a real baby in a gunshot scene. 
I, um, I only use the dummy. Um, as I said, uh, I only saw the uh, uh, close-up for the baby only for 20 minutes. When I'm holding my, my baby, they usually pee on my pants. Uh, so I got that ins inspiration uh, for this scene. When I'm shooting the explosion scene, I was crazy. We shot gasoline bomb in a real building. So there was uh, over 10 explosions in a hospital scene. And we were using four cameras to shoot the whole sequence. So uh, in fact, holding the baby is running, you know. And uh, during the, the scene, in explosion. Somehow, uh, some of the explosion got the wrong timing. Some explosion uh, blow up sooner, some later. But I, I see any part is so great, so, so amazing. I usually push the cameraman, pushing the camera in, into the fire to catch a real feeling. I was pushed and kicked the cameraman, the camera crew, to grab the camera, get into the explosion and into the fire. In a scene where the gangster is trying to blow up the hospital, John rigged the, the hospital with so much explosives that, you know, the special effects guys was really alarmed and, and through an AD, he called me and said, you know, look, John wants to use that much uh, explosives. The whole building is going to come down. We're all going to get killed. But nobody dared to talk to John about it because he was in, always in a very foul mood and people were afraid of him. So I, I was in the office, I got a call and I rushed to the set and, you know, tried to talk him out of it. And finally I did. And so he ended up using just one quarter of the amount of explosives and it was spectacular. You know? One of the interesting things about this film is how unimportant the villain ultimately is. He doesn't have much screen time. He's identified mainly by that haircut and the orange jacket he's always wearing. He is not nearly as central to the action as the uh, relationship between the two policemen, which is where all the emotional force is. He's an excuse. He's a narrative device. But I think where Hawks' characters bond through objects, through technology, they, um, they drive cars together, they pilot planes together, they chase animals and jeeps together. Uh, Wu's character is united more through a sense of mission, through shared goals, through common values. It's um, not quite as individualistic, not quite as, uh, I would say, modern a sensibility as, as Hawks. There isn't the same love of machinery. There isn't the same love of the object uh, that you see in Hawks films. It's a social vision, but it's not a political vision. He's always concerned with groups. He's always concerned with the relationship of the individual to the group, but it's not a power relationship. It's not a leadership relationship. I don't have a sense of different political values being in play here. I suppose you could say the gangsters represent a form of extreme individualism, as they, they do in American movies, uh, where we sort of admire them for that. But I don't think he's admiring them here. He's not on that fringe. Tony Leung's character is an undercover cop. There were only two solutions for him, death or go into hiding. 
And according to treatment, he should sacrifice himself to save everybody at the hospital. That kind of tragic ending was more consistent to my other films. However, after we saw the final shootout in the car park, my dear producers Terence and Linda and even Zhou Yanfat and the whole crew, they all suggested that Tony should live. They all thought we should create more hope and be more positive. Well, after all, life should not be so pessimistic. Also, throughout several months of shooting, we were almost like a big family. And I really appreciate everybody's total involvement in the project. So I finally agreed with them and shot the little epilogue where Tony Lang continues to chase after his dreams. As the sequence comes to an end and we feel the relief of the Chow character, he's faced his demons, he's destroyed them. He's recovered some of the innocence of that baby that he has rescued. It's a little bit of a rebirth, the baby being lowered out of the window. And as the action subsides, um, we feel that sort of calm after the storm, that peace that comes after the ritual drumming or the detonation of the firecrackers. Things are coming back together. That goal has been achieved. Certain wholeness has been recaptured that was lost at the beginning of the film. Well, the framing device is important in that we need always a sense of closure in John Woo, a sense of coming to an end point, a sense of equilibrium. There's a real economy of the work. There are certain things that are set out at the beginning and certain things that have to be rounded off and fulfilled at the end. And with the, uh, the burning of the file and the return to the, the origami birds in the water, um, again, the sense of ritual, of peace achieved, it's... Uh, the balance is back and it's a symmetrical form that has to be fulfilled to bring the film to an end. Roger Avery. You know, another really interesting thing to me about um, John Woo's films is this constant preoccupation with the sea and sailing away and being able to just let the wind, literally the wind and the ocean, you know, two elements that have nothing to do with mankind, let that take you away. And I oftentimes wonder, you know, what it's like to live in Hong Kong and maybe not have, you know, a way out. And to know that, you know, the communists are basically coming in and that basically that you're living on borrowed time and that you might not be able to get away. And just what it must be like to just stand there at the ocean and just to know oh, it's just so close yet so far away. And it's such a dream. I was raised in Hong Kong. I love Hong Kong and its people. And I love my country, of course. And I do not want to see any changes. I live a very simple life, but I can live in an environment where there is no freedom of speech and no freedom of creativity. As a Hong Kong person, I feel like I'm a floating weed or a falling leaf. I don't know where's home, but I'm always chasing a dream. Just like the characters in all my movies. 